0: We'd like to ask your attention for more considerations on Chita Let us acknowledge the, the, the relational dimension of this practice. As in any relationship, we will need to engage in a variety of ways with the mind. Um, there is no one right thing you can do. The, the thing that is right is the thing that uh, realistically engages and meets the condition of your mind, the condition of your mind's climate, the weather of your mind. Uh, Such a meeting has to be attuned to your own energetic capacities. It has to be attuned to what you actually touch. And it has to be sensitized. The good intention of somebody trying to help you is not very trustworthy if this somebody doesn't actually feel very well what I need. Yeah. So while intention is crucial and Buddhism makes no, uh, no secret about the power of wholesome and the power of unwholesome intentions, uh, intention alone doesn't do the job. Yeah. So it is necessary that we meet minds where they are. It is necessary that we learn to identify um, what it feels like, what's there, what isn't there, what it needs, what it is afraid of, how it can be vitalized, how it can be strengthened, how it can be made more confident, how it can be soothed, how it can be energized. How things that don't want to show themselves can be encouraged to actually come out into the open. How things who take much space and clamor for attention can be gently but persuasively, um, I wouldn't say sidelined, but kind of in a sort of benevolently overlooked in favor of other things which may be less clamoring and yet equally valid. So, in other words, we have to uh, engage in some some parental way with what's happening in this mind. Recognizing factors of mind. The Sutta has mentioned these uh, different factors. You recall from yesterday, I'm going to hang it up later when I walk out. Passion, how much of this is here? How much is absent? Aversion, how much is prevalent, how much is this mind free from aversion? All the differing flavors of moha, of delusion, perplexity, doubt, anxiety, numbness, to name just a few, is this present, is this absent, is this mind recoiled and shriveled, or is it Relaxed? Is this mind dissipated, distracted, flitty? Or is it still cohesive? Um, Is this mind developed? This is not developed. Uh, Is this mind possible? Is it conceivable that this could be improved, stabilized, deepened, strengthened? Is this mind free? Is this mind unified, calm, tranquil, or is it not? You know, those are good questions to engage. I believe my, you will have heard that a number of times, my, my three magical questions, I believe, still hold quite a, a bit of value. Just sitting down with oneself and asking, what's happening? You know, what's happening now? It takes me immediately into the present moment. How does it feel? Gives me on a scale of differing possible states I have already familiarity with. It gives me an orientation where I am. How does it feel? And then the third one would be, can I enter into conscious relationship with this particular climate, with this particular quality, with this particular mood? The third one, we vary a bit, you yeah? when we're speaking of thoughts, then we are an image, or an impulse, or a body sensation, we do it, we fine tune it. But the question is basically, can I meet this in a conscious relational way? And can I stay in that relationship with this particular experience? So, do make use of these questions throughout the day. Consider that what you meet in there is your friend, and as we are with friends, we we listen deeply. You know, friends are people who who care and who know how to listen deeply. Um, they listen to what we say, and they also listen to what we don't say, and they listen to how we say it. They listen not just to the message, you know, the cognitive label, but they also listen to the pressure in our voice, they listen to the choice of our words, they listen to the breathing that underpins that statement. I'd like you to consider again, this is easily overlooked with neat little maps and neat little pigeonholing systems. Yeah, five of those, and four of those, and six of those, and th- thirty-seven of those. The stuff, although you can discern it, discern it nominally by choosing a different vantage point, looking at it, relating to it, the stuff holds together. You never get a kanda alone. Yeah, you always get five, unless you happen to be uh, reborn in a very, very special, lofty place where there is no consciousness or no body. Yeah. But it looks to me like you're pretty pretty substantial in your physical appearances to me. This may, this may just meet my eye that way, but that's, look, that's what it looks to me, like that. So if we get Satipatthanas, although we speak of differing exercises in the differing channels, you know, stuff we do with body stuff, we do with vedana stuff, we do with mind state stuff, uh, we do with mind content in some way, we've dipped into that a little bit. Actually, you know, you never get a satipatthana alone. Every thought has a somatic component. If you become mindful enough of this, you will know that you cannot think something that has no Affective consequences. Any sensation in your body will evoke, if you play attention close enough, uh, a pleasurable or a displeasurable or uh, even an indifferent experience. So we do not get these satipatthanas neatly uh, separated. So it is likely if you stay within one field of practice, let's say investigate mind states, you will meet Vedana, you will meet thought, and you will meet body sensation. So you need to be clear about this, that with anything you hover for a while, with anything you enter into conscious relationship, you will be continually suggested to respond to that experience, not just from one vantage point, but for many others. And it is your choice and your task to choose the most skillful of vantage points to meet this particular experience. And in Chitta one of the things that seems to count is particularity. So we meet that friend in here, in its particular predicament, the particular Akinjean-esque conundrum of this condition here. And there has to be some willingness in us to actually meet this where we are rather than demanding that we somehow um, meet our criteria as we've learned them from the book or as we think I should be or as I dread I'm never going to be any different than what I am now. And um, obviously, Brahmavihara is coming to play there. Yeah. The willingness to meet—that's why metta is the front of the Brahmavihara practice. Because without that, nothing else really goes. The willingness to actually have enough interest and turn towards to welcome in, irrespective of it promises happiness or not. And to approach and to make availability and to begin resonating. This is the necessity, the necessary preliminaries, this is the necessary courtship for every process of investigation, understanding, deepening into. You know. Sometimes um, you know when you practice this. There are different stages in this practice. If you have an hour to practice, I would suggest you spend at least half of your time doing Samatha exercises. If you have three weeks, <clears throat> make it one and a half weeks. Yeah? Just use half of your time to still the mind. Now in that phase, our attitude to things that present themselves are uh, yes, yes. I hear you, you may be important, but right now you have to go and wait on the bench because I'm doing something else. And in that period, I'm trying to strengthen my capacity to put down, to solidify, strengthen, tranquilize the mind's resources. And it is clear that anything coming up in that phase is not going to be investigated. I'm not going to do vipassana with it. I'm not going to be compassionately aware of it or try to hold it or something. I'm just trying to put it down. Countless times, irrespective how big, how looming it is, I try to exert my strength in acknowledging, yes, this is happening, and yes, I'd like to not give all my attention to you right now. We do that as honestly and as effectively as we can. Without doing this, without this willingness to go possibly against the grain, something that comes at us with intensity or with urgency or with threats. We need to learn to put this down temporarily. But then there comes a time when, after you've done a lot of putting down, you basically say fair enough, I've put down many things, let me see what is left. uh, The things that keep coming back at you have probably some importance in your life, some significance. And rather than putting them down, I acknowledge their presence, and I acknowledge their uh, virulence, maybe. I acknowledge they're here, and I begin to try to establish a relationship that says, can I be with you without getting lost in you? Can I be with you without getting scared away? Can I be with you without being roped in and pulled in into your vortex? Can I be with you in a way that has more space? Are you really what you look like? In other words, I'm trying to negotiate my ground. What I have gained in strength and in skill of letting go and of stillness and of putting down and of moving back and distancing, I'm practicing now with you particularly. Can I be with you knowing that I could say, run away? Or put my attention elsewhere. Knowing that I can do that, I am now interested in you. So, what do you want? Yeah. What do you really want? Is what you say really what you want? In other words, you're engaging. We you begin to engage in a respectful, negotiated, uh, curious way to what is happening here. When I go a little closer, what does that make me feel? Does the space disappear? Does it change? Can I witness the luck in this? Can I witness conditionality? Can I witness that it doesn't really belong to me although it seems to be happening to me? Can I see that it changes? Can I recognize a pattern in the change, in the fluctuation? Anything that has fluctuations is not eternal, is not a curse. You're not completely helpless. As soon as it begins to fluctuate, you know there are things that make it stronger and weaker. If I can find out those things even a little bit, I am no longer completely at the mercy of this. So I have found an empowerment to, even if I may not cure this or get rid of it or completely transform it into sheer bliss, I do have strength to so in some way modulate that experience modulate my distance modulate my perspective modulate my, summon my resources so i call upon all i know about this mind and bring this into the relationship i bring my calm into the relationship i bring my compassion into the relationship i bring my sobriety into the relationship i bring my experience into the relationship knowing I have believed you many times, and you have beached me on a very painful cliff very shortly after I've taken the bait. I bring this into the relationship. And then I see what happens, whether that transforms the experience, whether the experience alters in a way, whether the space in which this experience takes place becomes more soft, becomes more wide, So there are a number of things that you can do if you have tenacious or Yeah, let's, let's not speak so negatively about this. You know, Sometimes our minds have quite happy patterns, isn't it? Um, usually they're not deemed to be a problem. So that's why some of the examples seem to be a little bit on the painful, on the Dukkha um, side. But uh, assume you have a re- recurrent, tenacious, cycles of thoughts, of images, of uh, patterns that you perceive in your experience coming back at you. Usually it's around situations, around people, and the worst ones are around ourselves. Um, And what you can do is you can just acknowledge the climate that these thoughts actually Produce in your mind? Yeah. What accompanies such a thought? Is this a happy thought? If this thought was a voice, how would that voice sound? Is this an angry voice? Is this a, a whimsical voice? Is this a. tries this voice to please? You know, am I trying. is somebody trying to charm me here? Or is it threatening? Is it snide? Yeah snarky little voices making apparently objective comments about the nature of reality. So I I tried to translate this from thought, I don't know how you experience thought, but try to translate it into sound. And imagine this sound, you would hear that sound from outside. Would you believe that voice that speaks to you in such a sound? What would you hear? We're pretty good when hearing when hearing voices, you know, human beings are quite capable of detecting conceit, edginess, leeriness, wanting to please, kowtowing uh, gestures, uh, clinical distancing moves. All this we can hear quite easily when we listen to somebody speak. You know, people can be fooled less easily with voices than with on TV, for example, I've done some fine, fine research on this, people were more easily foo- fooled f- by liars with visual cues, because you can learn to the visual cues more easily than you can learn the auditive cues. It's more difficult to lie just with a voice than with an appearance that you perceive visually. And since our visual sense is so dominant, if you do the visually right things, Um, then people do not give enough attention to their auditive cues, which would tell them that something isn't true. So consider these images, these thoughts, as they come up, in what, what kind of emotional, what kind of climate, what kind of mood do they carry? This is an angry thought. This is a sad thought. This is a tight thought. This is something tender, or naughty. So one simple question is, this, what is coming up in my mind recurrently, what does it engender in this mind right now? Can I, rather than handle the message of this image, or the message of this thought, can I somehow get in touch with the energy that propels it? Can I get in touch with the part of the Satipatthana that I don't get? Because uh, on channel four, I just get the message, I get the text. But actually, what propels this thought or image is not a message. What propels it is an emotion, usually. It is a state behind, of which this little thought is just the outcrop. This thought grows out of a particular soil. So, acknowledging... Sometimes I use this image, the wind, you know. Think of your thoughts or your images as being sailboats floating across, across an inner lake. And now, obviously, our attention, geared to see the object, wants to play with the sailboat, it wants to see, is it a big boat, a small boat, is it fast, what does it say, which number does it have, what type is it, yeah? We want to, we see the boat, but actually, in Chitta Nupassana we're not so interested in the boat. We're just interested in finding out where does the wind blow that blows this boat across our little lake. Is this an angry wind? Is this a sad wind? Is this a greedy wind? Is this a joyous wind? Is this an envious wind? Uh, Is this uh, a wind of placidity and serenity? Where does that wind come from? Just rather than looking at the boat, let's turn into the wind and find out what is this? What is the mood? What is the climate here that makes our little boat? What propels our little boat? Which corner? Technically you can do this in three ways. You can say, okay, what does it come from? Or you can ask, how is it here, where it is, when it occurs? Or you can ask, where does it take me? Yeah. When I follow this thought, where will I land in a minute? Assuming that many of your thoughts you have followed and you have a fair idea where you will land in a minute, if you give yourself to that thought, we're not so original. Many of your thoughts will be rehashed, highly familiar to you. You have a fairly clear idea where this one goes when you give yourself to it. When you give your attention, your energy, and your willingness to let that take root in your mind right now, you have a fairly clear idea where you'll land in a few minutes. Grumpy, greedy, lonely, sad, longing, helpless, we know pretty much where we land when we give ourselves to the familiar patterns of thought. We know all too well. So one way of playing this is kind of acknowledging this particular train, when I give myself to it, I know pretty much where I will land. I have a choice now to board or not to board. Destination is fairly clearly mapped. The tracks are laid. But I have a choice in getting on board or not. And if I don't get on board, this train will just go. And I stay behind and something else will happen. The mind will not have followed this energy, will not have strengthened this neural path, will not have deepened this particular karmic rut. And by doing this, I gently but persuasively begin to take some authorship in what's happening in my life. How this mind responds. Not necessarily what I get, but how this mind is willing and capable to respond as a friend to itself. So ponder this, please, and make use of it. Do shuttling. Yeah. Meditators are doing uh, shuttle diplomacy between things that strengthen their stability and calm and resources, and investigating, turning the problem so that it becomes accessible through our wisdom and our insight faculty. This turning is done by a a faculty called Yoniso It holds things slightly differently so as to give access to wisdom, to arise, to give access to vipassana, insight to arise. We're not doing the vipassana. This is a strange, weird, very recent interpretation of that term. Vipassana is not what you do. Vipassana is what you get when you meditate. I've never quite understood how this one came about, but whenever you look at the old texts, vipassana is not a practice. Vipassana is the fruit of meditation practice. Vipassana is the fruit of bhavana. And there is many forms of bhavana, and if you do bhavana, then the fruit of such an exercise, the taking up a kamatana, an object of meditation, is vipassana, is transformative insight. Technically, we call insights all kinds of things, an understanding of a particular dynamic. In terms of the scriptures, that, strictly speaking, is not vipassana. Vipassana in sort of all teachings, basically, when we understand the the hallmarks, you know, the impermanence, the... Transitoryness, the conditionality, the insatisfactory nature of all objects of our experience, and the selflessness, the impersonality—that we do not have ownership. These are, strictly speaking, what the old uh, contemplative tradition calls vipassana. If it is possible to hold this realization with anything, any moment any state, any object, any process. We do not lose this truth of these three lakhanas clearly. So shuttle between the things that are challenging, and with everything challenging, sometimes we lose it, or we lose our stillness, or we lose our distance. We become part of the problem, and then we just acknowledge, yeah, lost the plot, back to the breath, back to the posture, back to something that I know can help me still the mind. And you you shuttle between uh, the strength, your capacity to regenerate, to deepen your stillness, to regain perspective, possibly distance. And then you go back and see whether something has changed of that which you wanted to investigate, that which you wanted to deepen your understanding of. So don't expect this to just work. Much of meditation, as I hope you have understood by now, is about what happens when it doesn't work what we want to work. Much about meditation is about it's not working. Practice is not getting there. You know? Practice is it doesn't work. Practice is I am different from the plan I had for me. That's where practice begins, basically. Obviously we can't really write that into our brochures because... Uh, for public relation reasons, but you're old enough to hold this truth now. So be your friend when it doesn't work, when you turn out not to be where you wanted to be, or where you think you ought to be, or where you think you ought no longer to be.